Good morning, let me pray. Father, we are so thankful for who you are. We are thankful for your son, that we get to be uh, partakers with your perfect life of righteousness, your atoning death on our behalf, and the resurrection from the dead. And we look forward with great hope uh, to the promises that you have ahead of us. Father, we love you. I pray now as your blessing upon uh, your word today. Help it to be uh, one that unites, uh, unites this body of believers, unites the church uh, through the love that you have poured out through your son. And we pour, uh, let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can tell Doug's taller than I am as I'm kind of hidden behind the pulpit. I do appreciate the lip here, though, because I'm worried about my notes and pages flying all over the place. <laughs> well, this morning we're going to be uh, in Philippians chapter 3, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 12 uh, to the first verse of chapter 4. So Philippians 3. Uh, and in order just to give a little context, I'm going to start reading in verse 7 of chapter 3. So Philippians 3, beginning with verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, oh, thank you, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But... Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So as we look at the context of uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, uh, we know a couple things. We know 
that the church was under attack from a, a heretical group called the Judaizers. And this heresy of the Judaizers taught that you have to add your own obedience to the law in order to be saved. You had to have law and your faith in Christ, and that equaled salvation. Now, that heresy was struck down in the Council of Jerusalem. As you read in Acts 15, uh, they, they gathered together at, in Jerusalem, said, this is what is being put forward to us, that we must adhere, we must obey to the law of Moses. And only with faith in Christ and our obedience to the law, then we can be justified. Then we can be made right with God. And the council said, no, we believe that you are saved through faith alone. It's the finished work of Christ. Of all that we've sung about today, it's the finished work of Christ alone that justifies. Well, this heresy was causing confusion in the church at Philippi. And oftentimes what would happen, uh, we see through through Acts and through the epistles, that Paul or whoever might be the founder of a certain church, they would come and that church would spring to life, as we sing about, with their first love. And then Paul would leave. And shortly after that, these Judaizers would move in. And they'd start teaching this heresy to the church. And they would cause confusion in the church. It would cause frustration in the church because the reality is we are completely unable to keep the law of God and that reality conflicts with us because we have as believers the spirit of God in us and yet our flesh is fighting against the spirit and that turmoil causes this frustration and the Philippian church fortunately It was now 10 years after Paul and Timothy had founded the church. The Judaizers had moved in. It caused this frustration, which was causing uh, this disunity in the body at the church in Philippi. There was infighting and people looking out for their own interests, not the interests of others. 10 years after now, Paul is a prisoner in Rome. Timothy is with him. And the church at least had the sense to send Epaphroditus to Paul and ask for help. Now, just for us to help put ourselves in the Philippians' shoes, the, this frustration is something that churches, even today, this church, my church, we all, we all go through. As time goes on, the foundation that was laid at the beginning can be attacked. And we face the danger of responding to moral decline within our church by leaning or turning back into legalism. We see sin and we think, okay, well, in order to combat that sin, we have to lay law on top of it. And in that way, the purity of the gospel, that first love that we cling to is mutilated by trying to add law to what Christ has already done. Or sometimes the opposite happens in our churches. Sometimes our hearts become dull 
becomes dull toward the gospel. We may have an intellectual knowledge of the gospel, a knowledge of what Christ has done for us. And we think, it's finished. There's nothing I need to do, which is absolutely true. But if that leads to a dull heart, that's not the the power of the gospel working within us. So some of our churches, we can have a dull heart. We find ourselves not taking sin and obedience seriously. We forget the high price that was paid for our redemption. Now these changes in a church don't happen overnight. This is, like I said, for the Philippian church, this has been 10 years since they were founded. And at some point during that 10 years, their faith is being bombarded by the Judaizers. And in any church, it doesn't happen overnight. That frustration builds. We are stuck in this place that we call the already not yet. We already have all the rich promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. And as Paul said, he looks forward. He wants to obtain the resurrection from the dead as we are partakers in that new life in Christ. But that lies ahead. All the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus that are yes and amen, they're experienced some now, but there's even more ahead as we await our Savior to return and fully rescue us. But in the already not yet of our salvation, there is that, that frustration that we feel. We feel the constant tension between our flesh and the Holy Spirit, the realities of being both sinner and saint. And as the Philippians struggled with this frustration, the Judaizers came along and they, they offered a way out because all of us, all of us are geared thinking that we need to do in order to get. That we need to check off the boxes and when we can finally check off the boxes of righteous deeds, then we can finally be right with God. We can finally have peace with God. But that's a false sense of peace. And as I said, the Philippians here, they had enough sense to contact Paul and Timothy. They sent Epaphroditus. They used their phone-a-friend hotline to, to contact Paul and try to ease their frustrations. And at the beginning of chapter 3, we saw Paul lay out kind of his, his resume as it is. See, there's this attack against Paul that says, Paul, the only reason you preach justification by faith alone in Christ is because you can't hack being a good Jew. You can't hack obeying the law. Paul says, no, that's not the case. And he laid out in the beginning of chapter three his resume showing that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees as to the law blameless. And yet, what does he do with that resume? He throws it on the dung heap. He counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ his Lord. 
He has suffered the loss of all things for Christ. Now sometimes when we read that be- the beginning of chapter 3, of 7 through 11, we can read it and think, now Paul has the secret to living that peaceful life, uh, that life that might be free of frustration. He's figured out the secret. And for me, sometimes as I read something like that, or more times it happens where I read a biography of some Christian hero of the faith, and I come away after reading some, that biography, and I think, wow, if only I could pray like George Mueller, or if only I could sacrifice more like Hudson Taylor or Amy Carmichael or preach with a, with a passion of Spurgeon. Ugh, if only I could do those things. If only I could give my life like Jim Elliot. If only I could respond to tragedy like Elizabeth Elliot. And we come away from a passage like this in Philippians thinking, I need to suffer the loss of all things like Paul did. We see these people as having made their mark on the world and we see them as people who have succeeded in the faith. We think they've arrived. They've done it. And we wonder what the secret is to their success. So we too can finally arrive and we too can finally have that peace that seems to be present in the life of these heroes of the faith. But as Paul goes on, verse 12 onward, he reveals something somewhat unexpected. Paul is frustrated in this life as well. In verses 12 and 13, he's saying... It's not as though I have already obtained this goal that I so desperately want. Or it's not as though I've already been perfected. Even I don't consider that I have reached it. And there's a hint of this frustration back in chapter uh, 1 when he wrote that to live is Christ but to die is gain. He said if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet... Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire, Paul says, his desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It's far better to depart and be with Christ and be done with this frustration. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. His desire is to depart and be with Christ and be done with the tension that he feels as a new creation of Christ, as a sinner and a saint. That is far better than staying. Paul's frustration through his writings in scripture is clear. We are very familiar with Romans chapter seven where he says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, for I know that nothing good dwells in in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So, I find it to be a law 
that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We see this in the next chapter of Romans 8. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's that language of the already, not yet. When I, I love the doctrine of adoption, it just gives my heart joy and peace to think that I, who was once an enemy of God, have been adopted into his household. And, there, and there's a reality in the already that we are adopted. We are sons and daughters of the living God, of our creator. And yet, as Paul's saying here, he still waits eagerly for our adoption because he realizes the totality, the totality of that adoption will be fully realized in the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, for we know that, the, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And that tension that we feel when we read Paul or when we read some of these biographies of faithful Christians, it's that dissatisfied feeling within ourselves but Paul feels that dissatisfied feeling as well. Unfortunately, the answer that I tend to jump to when I feel that dissatisfied feeling is trying to fill up in my life something that I'm lacking. I want to help pacify that frustration that I'm feeling. But Paul doesn't make that mistake. Based on his resume that he gave at the beginning of Philippians 3, he knows better than anyone else that all of his righteous works do not justify him. No one is justified by a righteousness of their own. No one is justified by becoming more self-disciplined or by praying more or even dying to reach a lost people. You're not justified by those actions. So rather than trying to simply add more works of righteousness, Paul chooses and understands that as a believer, as a child of God, living in the already not yet, that frustration just sits there. And it's evident. We feel it. It's evident in the songs that we sang today, that frustration that hope that we have 
for our Savior to come. But in the here and now, we feel the frustration. The frustration that plagues us through sin in our lives. The frustration that plagues us just through life in this fallen world. In verses 12 through 14, Paul puts forward both his self-doubt and the confidence he has in Christ. He says, not that I have already obtained the completion of my salvation that will take place in the final resurrection. And not that I am already perfect, but I still press on that I may lay hold of it. But Paul, why do you keep running in this race? Because, he says, Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brothers, I, yes, even I, the Apostle Paul, do not consider that I have laid hold of it. I've not fully arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, it's not placing any confidence in the flesh, and straining forward to what lies ahead, that pinnacle of the work of salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knows the frustration he feels will only be relieved when he is finally glorified. When the totality of the salvation that we have in Christ is fully realized in our, the final resurrection. He finds his only hope in Christ, the one who took hold of him. How has Christ taken hold of Paul? Well, Philippians 2, he said, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking or obtaining or taking hold of. It's the same language that he's using here in chapter 3. Christ, by taking hold of the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Well, we stop short when our aim is simply to pursue the qualities that we see in the heroes of the faith, those who have gone before us. If we could have a conversation with them, and we would say to them, I just wish I could be like you in this way. I wish I could pray with more self-discipline. I wish I'd be more self-sacrificial to the point of laying down my life for a lost people. If we stopped there, they would tell us our problem is we're, we're not looking beyond them. We're not looking to the object of their faith, who is Christ Jesus. They would find no confidence in themselves, only confidence in Christ. And a person who sees themselves this way has adopted an attitude of humility not only in relation to Christ, but in relation to everyone. This is where Paul goes with verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way or have this mindset. Again, the language of this passage points us back to chapter two, where he said, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind or think this way among yourselves. 
This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. And that passage, of course, leads into that great condescension of Christ to take on, to take hold of humanity, to live a perfect life of obedience that led even to the point of death on the cross. And in living a perfect life of righteousness, a life that none of us here, none of those heroes of the faith could ever live, he lived the perfect life of obedience to his father, even to the point of death, even to the point of death on the shameful cross. And in that, he was highly exalted. He was won his life back from the dead. He was resurrected. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. And we know that the mindset of humility comes from setting our mind or setting our affections on the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we view life through that gospel lens, that is the place where we find hope. All the frustration we feel, as I said, the sin that plagues us, disease, sickness, death, all of these things that we feel in a fallen world, we are wanting, like Paul, so much to have that eternal reward that is promised to us, but we're not, we're not there yet. We have a hope when we look through the gospel lens. This hope leads us to forget or count as loss what lies behind and it causes us to strain forward to what lies ahead. Rather than causing us to flee to legalism, those check boxes that we, that we just so desire, can we just have a neat equation to, eat, to do this and this and this and that can equal peace with God because that seems so much more tangible. That hope doesn't lead to legalism but it also doesn't lead us to become complacent in our sin. It leads us to press on toward the goal. Paul doesn't press on because he has already achieved the goal. He strains forward and presses on because he is so sure that God's call wasn't just simply a call for him to enter the race. He says, the call that's mine in Christ Jesus wasn't just one that said, okay, you're qualified. I've given you the number that you can stick on your jersey and you can get in and run that race. Now the rest well, Paul, that's up to you. I've gotten you this far. Now do your best and I hope it's good enough. No. Paul knows that the call that is his in Christ Jesus, that upward call, not only qualified him to enter the race, but it sustains and strengthened him and it would result, definitely result in reaching the goal. He has the same confidence even for the Philippian church. He said in chapter one, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And in this race, we stumble from time to time and 
We get our eyes off of the goal. That is what happened to the Philippian church. Their affections had turned from Christ. That resulted in this attitude of self-seeking that was occurring among them, this disunity that was tearing apart the church. But because God has called them, Paul is able to say, if in anything you think otherwise, if you continue to break unity, I am confident that God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is, I, 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 even though I, I couldn't understand the song, I wish I could, but the explanation of the song, my, our first love, the explanation described this. Because at the beginning, we we're filled with just a hope upon hearing the gospel. Our, we have a joy. And then as our Christian walk continues, we trip and fall flat on our face and pick ourselves up and go back and forth. And there's that frustration. And Paul is saying here, let us hold true to what we have attained. Hold true to the gospel. Hold true to your first love. The gospel of Jesus Christ gave you a rest and a hope that didn't rely on your righteousness, but on a righteousness that's outside of us. And as we grow, we don't set the truth of the gospel aside. Think, okay, well, that's just my admission into the race, and now I'm going to do the rest on my own. No, our journey of faith is mining the depths and riches of what the gospel is. We never leave our first love. The gospel is there, clear and present in our lives, in our, our, ent- our entire journey of faith. Paul says, hold, tr- hold true to it. Don't accept anything that alters, that changes that truth. As we mature in the faith, the realities of the gospel ought to grow more and more clear to us. That's, that's a joy that these heroes of the faith, the mature around us, they realize at the beginning there was so much hope in the gospel. And now, as I've progressed in my Christian life, I've discovered something. It's even more hopeful and joyful than I even realized back when I first found it. Because as I walk and I stumble and I fall, I realize that I am not here because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done. And we realize as we mature, as we grow, that we are even worse than we thought we were at the beginning. Our sin becomes even more detestable to us. And we think, how could a God be so merciful to me? And then we see Jesus Christ we realize that chasm that we imagined at the beginning that was maybe like this is immeasurable. It gets wider and wider as you mature and you rely more and more on the gospel and you see the riches of it. Verse 17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And this 
may seem like a strange concept. Because I... I'd be afraid sometimes to tell someone to imitate me or to point them to someone else. Most of us would probably shy away from telling someone that. But again, that just points to our failure in our thinking that someone has arrived at some spiritual peak that we could never dream of reaching. But when you hear Paul say in this context, What he's doing, he's pleading with them to follow him in this race. Not because he's perfect. That is the prize that lies ahead. That's the prize we're straining toward. But he's saying, follow me in this race precisely because I'm not perfect. Yet I'm striving toward the prize nevertheless. Knowing that it has been prepared for him by his Savior. Paul says, I'm struggling in this race also. That frustration that you feel, I feel it. Join me. Join me in this race. And Paul isn't seeking to start some cult following here by saying, imitate me and become a little Paulite. No. He says you can have this same, um, follow the, those of the same mindset. He says not just Paul, but there's others around with the same mindset. He had pointed previously to Timothy. And he had said of Timothy, he described him as being genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare, not seeking his own interests, but those of Christ. And he said of Epaphroditus that he said, honor a man like Epaphroditus. Honor men like these because he nearly died for the work of Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying when he also uses this race analogy, pleading for the church to lift up one another's drooping hands and strengthen their weak knees. He says, we're in this together. Don't lose heart. That passage in Hebrews also points us to an imitation of those around us who have set their mind on Christ, who are pressing on toward all that God has promised us in Christ. As we comes off the heels of chapter 11 of Hebrews, that hall of faith, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Whether it's Paul or whoever is the author of Hebrews, he says something like that, sin that clings so closely, that is someone who's living in that frustration. This sin that clings so closely. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In verses 18 and 19 of Philippians, We see some who have set an example for us that we should not follow. They have proven themselves to be enemies of the cross. Their actions have revealed that their affections were not set on Christ, but instead their minds are set on earthly things. And I believe here that Paul is still speaking about the Judaizers. Those who have heard the good news, but then fell headlong into this lie 
Their seeking of righteousness through the law seems prudent for curbing the appetites of the flesh. They seem to be running after a worthy goal, but instead their end is the exact opposite. They're, they run toward destruction. Offering to add one's own righteousness to the completely fulfilled righteousness of Jesus Christ is shameful. It's a shameful thing to try to add our own righteousness to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And yet, these people here who set this bad example, they glory in this shameful exercise. But, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Our minds should not be set on earthly things, but they should be set on what is above. That false sense that we, of peace that we can sometimes find by checking off the boxes of our own works righteousness. No. We can't set our mind there. Paul points us to a sure hope that is ours as citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul used the same language of citizenship earlier in chapter one when he said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's the same, the same language from this uh, portion here in chapter three. It could read, because you are citizens, let your behavior be becoming of one who belongs to Christ. Now, how do we do that? Well, it's not by focusing on the merely temporal things. That list of checkboxes. It's by living as people who are eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm, Paul says. Persevere. Don't give in to an obedience that is born out of legalism. There's nothing you can add to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't enslave yourself to an attitude of legalism. Rest in the perfect work of Christ. Also, don't put your life on cruise control and think, well, Christ has done it. It's finished, so I can do what I want. I can stop taking sin seriously. I can stop taking obedience seriously. That's not the effect that the gospel has on us, the effect that the power of the gospel has on us. In this life that is filled with frustrations, we have to keep our eyes fixed on the prize that lies ahead. The prize which we have been called to. And when you struggle and when you doubt, we can also find that hope when we look around. We look around at one another. Look to those who are running the race. 
They're running the race with you. It's an important thing to realize. They're not in a special path by themselves. Like, here's, you're on the path of the really weak and feeble believer. Over here, we reserve that path for those who have arrived. No, Paul says, we are all on this path together. We are in this race together. Look to those who are running that race, who are not seeking their own interests, but are seeking the interests of others and of Christ, who are giving their lives to the work of Christ, who count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus their Lord. And when we see those people running, look at their eyes and we look at their gaze and what they're looking for. They have set their mind, they have set their eyes on a savior. And when you follow their gaze, set your eyes on your savior. He has saved us and he will save us tremendously more. We will see the totality, the realization of that salvation. And we set our mind on a savior who is coming to make all things new. And that is the hope of the believer. It is not found inwardly, but is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has run the perfect race of righteousness, who has fulfilled the law on our behalf, even to the point of death on a cross. And through his perfect sacrifice, he has won his life back. He rose from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. And we know that he will come again. I pray, Father, for my own soul. I pray for those here that you would help us to flee from the many things that we would want to cling to to find some sort of peace. That we would realize that the frustration we feel will only be put to rest, will only be done away with when our Savior Jesus Christ returns to make all things new and we celebrate and we find our only joy and our only hope that we are partakers with him in that. Help our eyes, help our gaze, our mindset to be fixed on him and him alone. And it's in his name we pray, amen.